I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Debunking Economics podcast. I'm Phil Dobby. Uh, Professor Steve Keen is with us as well. And today, in this free edition of the Debunking Economics podcast, we're going to have a look at the manifesto from UKIP. Now, very few people will be voting UKIP in the UK election. I happen to think that's a really good thing. Uh, I mean, even if you are a UKIP supporter, you could argue their work is already done. Britain is leaving Europe and Nigel Farage has got himself a daily gig on LBC. Job done. Everyone's happy. Uh, Unless you have to listen to him of course but they have published their manifesto and it's quite a weighty tome uh, compared to other manifestos actually so is there any logic in it well uh, there's lots about banning the burqa uh, with the uh, spurious argument uh, which you might have seen in the news that uh, they think it'll actually help reduce vitamin d deficiency uh, it's not racist at all it's just looking after their health uh, but uh, uh, and of course, we should return to the old British passport as well, because well, we want things back how they were. But uh, aside from all that stuff, what about their economic arguments? Well, let's go through some of the finer points with uh, Steve Keen. Uh, Steve, number one, the key one, uh, which actually has been more in the news than in their manifesto, but it is in there: zero net migration, one out. One in. I've sort of thought, yeah, that is going to make customs a bit like a, a, a shop car park, a shopping centre car park on a on a busy Saturday afternoon. Uh, you have to wait till someone mm-hmm. leaves before you can go in. Can an economy survive without any net migration? Yes, it can. I mean, this is a, it's not a, a, a cast iron thing. You have to have migration. And in fact, uh, there are some countries, such as Australia, where there's a fairly strong lobby, uh, still fringe lobby, but getting stronger to zero population growth and zero migration as part of that, on the basis that if you do have migration, what you've got to do is what they will call capital deepening, capital widening uh, investment. You can't do capital deepening. So if migrants turn up, you need more schools, more roads, more power poles, etc., etc. If migrants don't turn up, perhaps you can build uh, faster cars, uh, more uh, higher-quality public transport, etc., and maybe even do some industrial investment rather than capital broadening. So the, the overhead costs of, of migration even though they can increase your gross GDP, uh, they don't necessarily increase your GDP per capita. So it, economically, the argument goes both ways for migration. But can, um, you, can you do that broadening it, it, with the same number of people? without? Because, I mean, you're not adding... So take the UK, for example. Uh, if you got rid of migration, you'd basically be... Ne- the, the net growth, the 700,000 kids are born in the UK each year, about 600,000 of us die. So the population would grow only about by about 100,000 a year. And, of course, it's going to be getting progressively older as well, of course, uh, as a result of that. Can you do that when you're only adding 100,000 people? Are you going to have the resources and the skills to do that uh, that broadening? Well, it, it, that's, that's what it comes down to, it's the resources and the skills rather than the actual absolute number of, ba- of backsides so with sitting sitting on uh, on English shares or United Kingdom shares. Pardon me, I get them making that bloody mistake, don't I? Um, so that, that to me, is it's really about what, what the migration adds in the terms of the calibre of the society, the diversity uh, and, and, and 
what that adds to the ca- the character overall. And on that front, I mean, I'm very glad to be in the UK after they've discovered Indian and Thai food mm. uh, rather than what they were like beforehand. So it's, it's 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 how it changes the character that I think matters more than anything else. But I'm on this particular front. Normally, you know, people think I'm going to give an economic argument. My main one is an ecological one, and uh, it isn't, of course, my, stopping migration won't solve the problem because the problem is being manifest more in countries like Syria um, and uh, in Africa than anywhere else. But we have environmental overload in every country on the planet with very, very few exceptions. Uruguay and New Zealand are the two that come to mind. And part of that uh, is that we have overloaded the capacity of each of these little entities, including the entire United Kingdom. Uh, the amount of resources we're taking out of it on a yearly basis about one and a half what it can reproduce on a yearly basis, which is where a large part of environmental stress is coming from. Uh, and that's, uh, that's what the human ecological footprint. I recommend people take a look at that and look at where the UK stands on that. I haven't, I haven't got the numbers in front of me, but I'm guessing I think the UK is about one, using about 1.3 to 1.4 UKs per year right now, right. if not higher. I think Australia so, does you know, worse on that, doesn't it? No, Australia. Australia has actually been below the one level, but approaching very rapidly. All right. Um, because what it, what it actually does is it tries to map uh, the amount of economic activity into an acreage of available land. So it's obvious there's a one-for-one match if you're talking about the amount of rice you consume, how much land you need to make rice. But they then make various um, fairly reasonable mappings between, OK, if you want to produce cars, then what's the effectively... Uh, ecological footprint of building a car translated into a number of acres versus the number of available acres in the in the society itself for reproduction of the human species. And uh, on that basis, Australia is below allocating one, I think. Right. I, th- I thought it's because Australian, Australia's, Australia's fuel consumption is so high. I thought that may be uh, compared to the yeah, UK. It's, it's also our area is so big. So right. Yeah, exactly. That <laughs> helps, that of course. We're, we're, anyway, so, we're, saved, we're, we're saved by the, by, the, uh, by, the, by the great sandy desert. Okay, so the ecological argument makes perfect sense. What about just getting back to economics yeah. for a second, though? I mean, the conventional mm-hmm. argument would be, um, well, maybe it's not a conventional argument, but uh, you know, the, uh, eco- economic, the economy obviously depends on, uh, on growth to survive. Uh, capitalism you know, needs growth. And um, unless if we've got a static population, then we need productivity growth, which we're not seeing. So the only way to get around that problem is to throw more people at it. I still think the productivity argument wins. So in this particular case, uh, economically, I'm not opposed to their argument. No. It's the political, uh, yeah. the political side of it, which I see as disastrous. So, but we have to uh, do something about productivity. Some if we do that, we have to have something about productivity. Mm. I'm not seeing a lot in their yeah. in their perspectives about um, uh, about how we're going to do that. But if you if you're saying the one thing, no. you've then got to say, but we've got to do this, uh, and that's the other yeah, issue. That's right. That's- yeah. Okay, now on Brexit, Britain should have the right to sign free trade deals with whoever it wants and it must not make any divorce payment to the EU. Uh, but I'd assume that we'd want a free trade agreement with the EU and if we do that, we'd want them on our side. So maybe we'd have to pay that uh, divorce payment because, look, you know, the EU accounts for more than 40% of our trade. So um, I know you don't like free trade deals, but so long as Europe is there, we don't want a 15%, uh-huh. we don't want a 15% tariff on everything we, uh, we export to them. Well, frankly, I'd rather go to the divorce courts over this. I mean, this is, <laughs> I've just been talking about my own history in the, on the marital front with the journalist back in Australia <laughs> on, uh, for an article about the 10th anniversary of the financial crisis. Um, but, yeah, sometimes you want to reach a negotiated settlement with your spouse. Other times she, she, he or she is so bloody unreasonable, all right, we'll take it to court. 
Now, in this particular case, the court is the World Trade Organization. And if the EU uh, is unreasonable, uh, they can actually be sued by, by the UK in the World Trade Organization for breach of the WTA rules. And frankly, I think it's about some time somebody did sue the EU over that sort of thing. So, again, on this one, um, I mean, obviously I've got huge political and, and social differences with UKIP. I was going to say, uh, thank God for that, because at the I, moment you're, you're seeming like a, a big, a staunch UKIP supporter here, Steve. <laughs> no, in fact, <laughs> one of the reasons I voted for Brexit, people say, you're supporting the racists, you're supporting UKIP. And I said, yes, and what else have UKIP apart from opposition to the EU? Yeah, that's right. That's in other what... words, if we... If we if we concede that point, they're likely to evaporate. Well, gee. Yeah, that's right. Another one on predictions went. Another one on predictions went wrong, didn't it? <laughs> All right, VAT. We're going to get a thousand percent more votes than I thought. We're going to go. They're going to get zero percent seats. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, like I don't think they're going to do very well this time around. That's for sure. VAT is another yeah. one of their their points. They want to get rid of it from energy bills and from takeaway food, because uh, of course, if there's one thing Britain eats, it's more fast food. We're not fat enough as it is. Uh, but look, selectively mm-hmm. applying the VAT is one thing. What about getting rid of uh, VAT altogether? Which they, they're not suggesting. But uh, just as an aside, is it an effective tax? Uh, in you know, in which case, why not apply it to everything and keep it simple? or get rid of it and uh, and just use income tax? Yeah, it's, it's one of those. It's, it's a regressive tax in, in some extent. The more consumption is part of your expenditure basket, the more you're paying a VAT uh, than someone whose main expenditure is on buying uh, uh, luxury apartments secondhand. Um, so it's one of those things where the working class and the poor tend to pay more uh, that way than the wealthy do, which is why they're which is why they're saying uh, let's make it less regressive. Let's look at where the where the hurt is felt yeah, by poor people, yeah. which is energy bills yeah, and yeah. sadly takeaway yeah. food. Yeah, uh, which you know, that's a good point politically, of course. Um, yeah, but I, I mean, I, it, it, the taxation system. People think you need taxes, and this is we'll talk about this in a moment. People think you need taxes to pay for government spending, and tax taxes have got a redistributional aspect to them. The government can spend without needing to tax to get it back. But if it does spend that way, then it can get accumulated in various parts of society and the taxation system is supposed to redistribute that. That's the main function of it. And George Cooper's book, by the way, I recommend people take for George Cooper, Fixing Economics, because George makes a very good argument on that front about needing a, a, a social democratic system to stop the accumulation of wealth and therefore enable the system to continue generating circulation. So that's the way that I see taxation as well. And on that front, virtually everything uh, that we have in the moment in the taxation system doesn't work properly that way because it's so easy for corporations to evade their taxes and so easy for the rich to evade their taxes, whereas the poor can't evade them. And, of course, they can't evade VAT and they can't evade income tax and they certainly can't evade council tax and things of that nature. So I'd be looking for a whole set of reforms about that. Frankly, one of the ones that I'm most uh, inclined towards is a simple transactions tax because with the transactions tax, uh, corporations who, are, who end up declaring 90% of their profits in the Cayman Islands don't do 90% of their transactions there. Yeah. So if you set it up in such a way they pay tax per transaction, very, very slow, low rate, of course, much lower than income tax or VAT. If they pay per transaction, they can't avoid paying it yeah. as easily. Um, so I'd, I'd, that's more the sort of reform I'd go for. The VAT stuff, I'm sort of... ACDC on, but certainly reducing, I can understand the appeal of of saying let's reduce the costs 
the most important cost for the poor in society. Right. Okay. And uh, and so another one which you've sort of touched on is they've said cracking down on corporate tax dodging. It's talked about about a lot, and you know it is a problem as long as we've got multinationals and uh, maybe a trans- uh, transactions tax is uh, part of the answer. They give the example of Starbucks paying less than one percent of their turnover, even though they're making profits of thirteen point four million pounds. Um, in in this country, so the the idea of the transaction tax is basically you're paying where the where where sale is made rather than where a, where a product is made in effect. Yeah, and it's I mean a bit like it, it sounds a bit like sales tax, but it's not the same thing. Uh, it, it just means the corporations would be the sales tax is paid by the consumer, the transactions tax would be paid by the corporation that makes the transaction, right. and then as a result, like rather, rather like you're paying VAT when you buy your Starbucks. And, you know, I, I think it's really honourable of you to help recycle some of the world's used dishwater. Um, but uh, <laughs> but this, this Starbucks itself would then say they pay maybe half, half of a percent tax on that. And then they'd be, they might pay no corporate income tax, but they pay half a percent transaction tax on the transaction they do, including paying wages, buying up supplies, etc., etc. And with all that, they'd be whinging like crazy. But ultimately, they'd have a tax base which you could fine-tune to be equivalent to what they would pay if they didn't pay income tax without whacking it off into offshore uh, offshore tax havens. Right. Okay, look, I know, I'm sure if you suggested this to uh, UKIP, they would, uh, they'd, they'd be onto it straight away, given that you are such an ardent supporter of theirs. The, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, You're going to pay for that, mate. <laughs> getting rid of the inheritance tax. Well, maybe you'll disagree on this one. Getting rid of the inheritance no, this, this, tax. This, this, they, yes. They want yes, to see yes, wealth passed yes. from generation to generation. Basically, this this is where you, this is this is a lot of the policies that people like you could put forward, and this applies to Le Pen as well, and for that matter, Trump before he actually got the job, uh, are stuff which left wing people put forward as much as right wing people do. Mm. This is often seen as the left and the right, the extreme left and the extreme right meet on a large amount of economic policy. But what's the, the little give here is that when it comes to things like in, inheritance tax. The argument, the, the, the progressive argument here is you want the tax to redistribute, you don't want the wealth to accumulate, we need a wealth tax. Now, of course, comes UKIP, and that's where they show their, their, their truer colours in that sense. They're not, they're not lefties disguised as, you know, hiding behind right-wing slogans. Right-wingers who, who overlap on a range of issues with progressive people, left-wing people. But this one, no, no they, they reckon you should hang on to the wealth. This is all the individual orientation, right? That's the difference. So the right's got an individual interpretation of liberty. The left has a collective interpretation of liberty. Uh, the right will come out and put policies like cutting VAT, uh, which is you know, helps the poor and so on and so forth. But income inheritance tax, no, no, that's the state getting your fingers in our money. We don't want that. Stop it. Um, when you see tax as a way of stopping accumulation of money generated by society and, and with and stopping it accumulating with people with power who therefore do not spend and therefore give you lower levels of development in the first place. Uh, no, the, you know, I want the inheritance tax. So that's that's one I would uh, definitely cross the box against. Right. And we know, look, Theresa May... You've got to do it cleverly. But, yeah. but, you know, but that's like, I can't accuse past governments of doing it cleverly, but you do need an inheritance tax. Yeah, I know. It, it, it's easy to avoid, of course, as we saw uh, with uh, David Cameron. Of course, all you need to do is, uh, when your dad dies, is to get your mum, who mm-hmm. gets all of the inheritance, it doesn't have to pay an inheritance tax, to give you a very nice gift. Uh, and so it's not mm-hmm. an inheritance tax. And we look, we know Theresa May got into trouble with her dementia tax because old people would basically have to fund more of their care and that payment was going to be made from the family home after death. That actually seemed quite a good way of 
applying an inheritance tax. But, of course, it would only apply to people who are very ill uh, in their final years. Uh, but, of course, she had to do a big U-turn on that. So it shows it's a, uh, you know, uh, the, yeah, the right don't like the idea of an inheritance tax, tax at all. Uh, and as you say, perhaps the left does. But how do you apply it? All right. Well, thank God there's mm-hmm. one you disagree on. Maybe you're not quite such an ardent uh, UKIP supporter after all. Uh, that's, um, they then say uh, helping small business by um, uh, reducing business rates by 20% for the 1.5 million Britain, British businesses that operate from premises with a rateable value of less than £50,000. Is that going to help small business? Basically, I guess getting them to pay less rates is better than the often the argument that's used, which is to cut down the amount of tax they pay. Uh, because you and I are both small businesses, and I'm sure you operate the same way that I do. That my business doesn't make a profit. I, um, you know, any money becomes my income, and so I, it basically is income tax. So I don't care what corporate tax rates are. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's also the extent to which the impasse actually prevented businesses from forming. And uh, if you have ex- extreme base costs, then it will stop you being innovative in that sense. I've actually, I'll be putting up a, a, a interview I did with my lovely cartoonist friend, Miguel Gira, uh, when I visited him last weekend in, in France. Uh, and the reason I visited them in, in Paris, uh, just on the outskirts just near Versailles, the reason it's in Paris is because they moved to Spain and they simply found it impossible to establish a business there. And one of the reasons was if you open up a business in France, in, in Spain, you are required to pay 300 euros per month to the government. Mm. Now, if, you, if you're starting a new business and you've got, you already got an overhead effect of your 4,000 euro a month a year to pay to the state, uh, you, 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 know, you, you and I both know it's like starting out at the, the small scale. That's such a large chunk. You don't have you, you don't have the capacity yeah. to start in the first place. But we don't so have any like, like we don't that. have any of those problems here, though. I mean, that's that's another point they want to talk about: cutting red tape to help small business. Um, but I'm not sure that's going to make too much difference. I don't think there is a lot of red tape. I think uh, small- not, not in the UK, not mm. not in France. They, they moved to France because there was no such cost in France. It cost them a couple hundred dollars to set up a euros to set up a business. Uh, quite straightforward, but it, it can be a discouragement. Spain's actually driving out. You know, that, that's a particular instance I know. Driving out entrepreneurs uh, in the UK and in France is actually quite straightforward to do it. So uh, to me, that's. It's, it's not a major issue over here. Yeah. All if right. it was talking in Spain, much more major. Okay. So they're arguing something there that people are going to go, what? Yeah, don't see the point there, perhaps. Um, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Making a lot of noise, perhaps not understanding the situation. Uh, tightening up rules on zero-hour contracts, limiting their use, and enforcing minimum wages, more policing of minimum wages. Uh, I guess uh-huh. we're probably going to agree on that, aren't we? That sort of makes sense, protecting yep, lower-paid workers. We're going to Yep, that's and that's again one of the ways. This is a, a, the you know the right often gets its support from workers who are disgruntled with how they've been screwed by neoliberalism in the last forty years, and the left has exactly the same policies. The difference is actually the right tends to put these things into practice when they get in power. The left doesn't quite know what to do. Build more houses uh, so young people can afford their own homes. Their answer to all of that is locally manufactured factory-built modular homes. We're going to read... Uh, they're saying it's not going to be like the, the prefabs, the post-war prefabs, which, are, of course, quickly were built to accommodate a growing population. Um, but put money behind a, a locally uh, produced modular home manufacturing industry because that's what's going to solve the housing crisis. More homes. Well, it's not correct as to what's actually the cause of the problem. Yeah. I think I've explained... We've, we've done this one already. It's actually accelerating mortgage debt that drives house and that's 
you've got to do your cure at the demand side, the monetary side, rather than the supply. However, uh, a major reason why this happens is it is so difficult to build houses and new technology which is coming out uh, gigantic extensions of 3D printing. Uh, there are now companies in China in particular which can 3D print an entire house <laughs> and it's, it's just basically you, you might have an area, let's say you have an area of 100 square metres which is a fair, you know, that's the size of a reasonable apartment, maybe uh, that's 10 by 10 in the simplest way of thinking about it, 10 by 10. Normally these things are 5 by 20. So you have a machine which is a bit larger than 5 metres by 20 metres which has all the nozzles necessary to lay concrete, uh, to put to put uh, tubing in, which which uh, uh, you know, through which your, your metals pass, actually lays the metal in the house as well, and they can build a house in a day. Right. And this sort of technology, I think, uh, is going to be extremely disruptive for house for the entire property industry around the planet. And it's about bloody time. I'm actually looking forward to it. Right. You so still got to find. You still got to find somewhere. To, still got to find somewhere to put your eyes, Of course, no, that's the- that's the trouble. It's, it's, it's actually the price of land which is out of reach, not the price of housing. Yeah. But if you made it possible to whack up an instant. Uh, you know, almost, almost you know, print a house a day um, and have that on a, on a grand scale in some regions which were then served by high-speed rail or high, you know, other forms of high-speed transport, such as the mag, maglev systems, uh, what's it's called? I've forgotten my, my favourite one on that technology. But there's, there's you know, like a hyper, if you look at the Hyperloop idea from Elon Musk and so on, yeah. those sorts of things mean that the, uh, the, the need to be in the city to get transportation to get around be solved and suddenly that becomes a bargaining ploy that the finance sector has for driving up the price of houses suddenly disappears. So um, I don't see supply as the solution to the problem, but that particular solution uh, is something I think is really going to come along and it's worth promoting. Right. You were touching on there the question of uh, of land use and transport policy being integrated somehow. That That's a crazy idea. That's never going to work. But um, the... No, no, silly idea. <laughs> silly idea, of course. That is so 1960s of you, Steve Keane. Have you, have you seen the Minister of episode on that, by the way? No. When they make, they make Sir Humphrey the uh, transport czar, and he realised, in fact, he's, he's completely trapped in the battle between the, the road, the rail, and the air uh, transportation uh, ministries, which are all trying to undermine each other. <laughs> Re- recommended episode. Right. Look, I've only just discovered the thick of it, which I'm uh, I'm finding absolutely fabulous as a as a sort of like a uh, an example of how government really works. Um, so, okay. So, d- just finishing off on this uh, on this home story. If we did have cheaper homes, yeah. as, we, as we say, we've got still got the issue with with land prices. But say land, you know, they were placed in, in in locations where land prices were lower, and we did have better transport. That would just make houses more affordable for a while for more people. But wouldn't that also be an opportunity for banks because they would be able to lend more? Isn't there a danger that actually will increase borrowing by doing this? Yeah, well, the thing is you, you, want to, you want to reduce the cost of housing back to the level that Hugh Paveltich, who runs the Demographia survey, and is an ex-developer, a first, first-class developer in, in New Zealand, he's been arguing that the real, the real price of housing should be between two and a half and three and a half annual median, median incomes. Right. And now at the moment we're looking at levels of about ten or so. So 10 we really have a problem yeah. here. I don't think the solution is, is the is the key solution. It would take forever anyway. Um, but it is 
uh, it, it's something which the other parties have to acknowledge. And if they don't, they might see you keep rising from the dust. Yeah. All right. Save the NHS. Redirect money from, uh, they're not saying it like this, but this is what they basically are saying. Redirect money from starving people in Africa to look after our own people. They want to divert £11 billion from foreign aid into the NHS each year. Well, this is where we get to the whole issue. Do you have to run a, a balanced budget or not? Yeah. And that's the whole idea that you have to take from one place to another to fund government expenditure is crap, which we're, we're going to get to, I hope, at some point towards the end of this, this discussion here. Um, so I want to see, yes, definitely increase the NHS. It's cauterised by the by the cutbacks that the, have happened under the Tories in the last eight years, but it was also diminishing under, under the Blair and Brown governments with less and less money going on on the basis of we can't afford it. As if you're saying you can't afford to have a healthy population. You can't afford not to have a healthy population. So partly that uh, that shift there is, is valid, but you do not have to do it by cutting back on overseas aid. But one thing about overseas aid is uh, you have to be earning, uh, you have to, have to be making a reasonable level of um, revenue on your exports to enable that because you do have to convert those British pounds into American dollars to actually have anything built in the rest of the world raises another weakness that I don't think UKIP is addressing. Right. Okay. So, in fact, if we were looking at this uh, from a global perspective, if you've got a high level of, if you've got a, a net, uh, uh, if you don't have a trade deficit, if you've got a net trade surplus, then uh, you're the countries that uh, we should be looking at as doing your bit to try and help those starving people in Africa. And that was exactly exactly the point of Keynes's proposal for the Bretton Woods that countries running a trade surplus would be first of all required to pay to to, to uh, their economy. Secondly, they pay a tax to the IMF, which would then be redistributed to third world countries. So the the, the, the author of five point is ever seven percent of our income, regardless, is just because having destroyed Bretton Woods by not enabling the creation of the Bancor, uh, we then got the Americans coming up with this nice, you know, for zero point seven percent target. The reality is that could all have been financed uh, through Bancor. Uh, by taxation on surplus countries, right. which we should have done, we haven't done. So, you know, I, I, I'd rather see the 0.7 percent target defended than un, undermined. But the reason it's so unpopular is because we removed the mechanism that Keynes wanted to have in the first place to enable that sort of transfers to occur from surplus nations. That would mean Britain. Uh, well, it would mean the United States, in particular, wouldn't have to pay any foreign aid. Yeah, that'd make Donald Trump happy, wouldn't it? Make him enormously also, successful. <laughs> yeah, and he has to have to abandon having the American as a reserve currency. And the Americans are stupid enough to think that's a good idea. So unfortunately, they will probably stick with. Right. Okay. This idea that the the budget has to be in balance. I mean, we we don't have time to explore that more because we have done it so many times. But if you are listening to this podcast for the first time, uh, subscribe and uh, listen ad nauseum to that argument because we explore it in in so many different ways in these in these podcasts. But I've got a new one I want to talk about. We won't actually do it in this one. But if, if, if I told you about my little idea of if the cartoon book I'm doing on money with Miguel Guerra, mm. I'm going to start with the adventures of Tom, Dick, and Harry. And uh, that is going to be Tom, Dick, and Harry deciding to form their own society uh, separate from America, which is where they're based, they're all staunch Republicans, and, uh, and, and show the government how you actually run a surplus. And then what happens is that Tom, Dick, and Harry starts to have economic problems they weren't expecting. And uh, by putting their heads together, they work out what they're going wrong. Uh, but, yeah, if you, if you were trying to balance a budget, uh, and, and, and as the EU itself codifies a balanced budget, or a surplus, you're actually destroying money over time. Yeah.
Yeah. Okay. Good. And that's uh, so unique. You should run a deficit. So they're wrong on that particular front. Yeah. Because if you uh, well, what's the exactly because if you're if you're based yeah. in effect if you're taking money from the private sector you're taking money from the private sector uh, to try and fund the, uh, the 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 public sector and the the private sector doesn't have that doesn't have that cash anymore. Um, so how's the economy going to grow? I mean that's the nutshell, isn't it? Whereas the public sector does produce the cash. So it's yeah. actually we're getting things asked about tip to use an Australian expression. All right. All right. Finally. Uh, scrap tuition fees for STEM subjects. So science, technology, engineering and mathematics should be free at university, but not arts, humanities and all that touchy-feely stuff. You should still have to pay for that. No, but the whole, the whole damn lot should be free. The yeah. whole, and this is the case in, in Germany, for example, which, of course, is a well-known socialist economy. Um, <laughs> it, it, is, it is quite possible for a, a government to fund education that doesn't need... The difficulty is getting decent teachers and decent facilities. The payment for it is one of the ways the government should be running a deficit. And in that particular case, it means rather than bureaucrats deciding how the money is spent, it tends to be students deciding how the money is spent. And that gets both into university funding and, and paying for, for alcohol at the local taverna. So I'd rather have the government spending, which we need to generate a deficit, uh, being done by students than done by bureaucrats, uh, you know, in that particular case, deciding whether I'm a good teacher or not. Um, so there is a, a real argument for education as an investment in the country's future and the government has the capacity to do that and you want to have the openness the capacity to get a good education to be as widely available as possible because there are the occasional kids in the, in the working class and, in the, and the you know the poor parts of society who are potentially the next Einsteins you don't know where you're going to find the brains um, and if you leave it make it all privatized then it's only the wealthy get access to quality education and we end up with amplifying the inequalities in society. So there's the whole idea of privatising it has been a disaster. The students paying for it, from my own personal experience as a lecturer in the last 30 years, the attention span that students have has declined as their payments have gone up, and they think they're buying a degree, so they're annoyed when they get failed if they're not good enough. Uh, all this stuff has right. made education far less high quality. So I'm in favour of abolishing the lot, so we actually get back to quality again. Right, but that's and not what they're saying. Pay they're, attention in class. But they're no, sa- I know. They're they're, they're, they're saying yeah. they, they're just for STEM subjects. No, no, it's, it's got to be the lot. Yeah. I mean, what would happen if it was just for STEM subjects? I mean, I'm not sure it would change too much. I mean, obviously, their argument is, well, we need more real jobs. We need more scientists. We need more engineers. We need more technologists. But are we going to get that in reality if you if you make it free? Well, you, 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 it's certainly better than having them, them all paying for it. But a lot of what happens in terms of creative uh, engagement, I can look at my example of my, my good mate, Russell Standish, with whom I'm writing Minsky. And we're also writing a new software package called Ravel, which is going to be a commercial attempt at a, a spreadsheet killer. Um, now, uh, I, I love Russell dearly, but when it comes to designing an interface, uh, you want me in charge of that rather than him. So <laughs> um, in, in, in there's, there's, there's a way in which there's a creative interplay, potentially, yeah, between the STEM subjects and the humanities. And to think you can just go STEM and get the type of society you want no, you've got to take a risk and occasionally little Michelangelo come out as well. <laughs> very good point. Well made. All right, very good. So, look, uh, scores out of 10 then. Uh, it seems like uh, you, you've uh, you, not a total UKIP supported. I mean, possibly they've got a few good ideas here, a few crazy ideas. Uh, it's the rhetoric uh, which surrounds it all, isn't it, really, which uh, it completely invalidates yeah. any of the sound arguments that they have. And on this particular front, given that the uh, Labor Party's come out with complete abolition of university fees, 
uh, proper funding of the NHS and renationalising the railways, as it happens, I'll be voting for the uh, Labor Party in this next election. If, free, if May come up with the same policies, I'd be voting for her uh, because I simply want us to have sensible economic policies that aren't fixated on this nonsense idea we have to run a surplus. Uh, but on that front, the, the Labor Party is closer to it than UKIP is on that front. So because they're arguing what I see as economically sensible, uh, not being so hung up about a surplus uh, and, and being able to consider the possibility of a deficit, that's at least an improvement over where we're starting from. So that's where my vote's going uh, in the coming election. Right. Yeah, by the way, there's one other one, which is the BBC should fund itself through subscriptions. No license fee. We could we, we might as well call, <sighs> might as well call it ITV six or ITV seven, whatever whatever they're up to now. This this idea that no, people, there's, there's, this idea people would argument, pay for content. It? It, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, unless, no. of co- unless of course <laughs> it's subscribing to the Steve Keen podcast at Patreon or at debunkingeconomics.com. Let's leave it there. Good talk, Steve. Okay. Okay, mate. We'll cover more, more, more subtly the issues in the future. All right. So there we are. A little taster of the Debunking Economics podcast. We normally do it once or twice a week. And yes, there is a small charge to subscribe if you want to listen to all the episodes. But we do get uh, down and dirty with some of uh, Steve Keen's economic arguments. And we try and make it accessible to everybody. So if you're interested in this alternate way of looking at the economy, if you think that neoclassic economics might have it wrong, then do subscribe either at Patreon or at DebunkingEconomics.com. And we look forward to welcoming you back soon. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for joining us. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.